Today is Thursday, September 20th, Lecture 2, Astronomical Numbers. We'll begin in just a moment. So this is the first full formal lecture of the class. The uh, podcast uh, I'll make a note of was actually accepted by iTunes early this morning, so it, in fact, is now officially live through that channel. I've put the first two uh, podcast notes up. One is just a simple welcome note saying, yeah, what's this all about? The second one is basically the audio from yesterday's second half of the lecture where we went into the what is science, what is astronomy. And so today will be the first full lecture podcast recording for those of you who will be going after those. So those should all be ready and available on the website. Now we use this lecture, which is very elementary material, of course. I hope this is just a review for everybody. But in order to begin to talk about astronomy, we need to develop a common language. In science, we've developed a series of standard, standard terminology, standard nomenclature, standard ways of measuring things, so it doesn't have to matter where we are or even, in many cases, what language we are speaking in order to communicate our ideas across. These standards are very important to us, and we're going to use these standards in this class. Now, as I begin each lecture, each of my lectures is going to begin with a slide that looks like this. If you're taking notes by hand and you want to take notes, this is what you should get down. This is the outline of the lecture. It's the key material that we're going to be covering in that day's lecture. Furthermore, these key ideas slides are very useful to you because if you collect them, they're at the top of every one of the web pages, and put them all together, sort of cut and paste them, you will have a study guide for every exam and the final exam. Because this is, in fact, what I do when I build exams. I say, what were the main important things I talked about in this class? I go to my key ideas slides, I make a list of those, and then I go through and I check them off as I make up the exam to give balance to material. Now I'll switch emphasis strongly from some one thing to another, of course. I do have some, some options there. It's just purely mechanical. I can't quite program monkeys to do this, although it feels that way sometimes. But this is the key of the slide. This is the outline. This is how we're going to do this. So today we're going to be talking about astronomical numbers scientific notation, and our system of units that we're going to use in this class. So I'm going to hopefully reintroduce to you all the idea of scientific notation. That's the expression of numbers and powers of 10. And the standard prefixes that we're going to be using a lot, kilo, mega, giga, tera, things like that. Then I want to introduce, or I hope reintroduce to you, the metric system of units. All science is done using metric units. And we'll look in particular at the key units that we are interested in and some astronomical variations upon those themes that are going to be important to us. We'll reintroduce those again as we go on in the class. But in particular, I want to get across the idea today of the units of mass, length, and time, what their origins are and how we're going to be using them. And in particular, at the end, I want to introduce the concept of weight versus mass because it actually is important to us in astronomy and not so much on the Earth. On the Earth, we all pretty much feel the same gravity field, and so the distinction is moot and, in fact, is heavily conflated in our language. When we go on to other planets, that's no longer true. So we've got to actually make this distinction physically. Now, one thing about astronomy is astronomy is a science. Science is quantitative, and we use a lot of numbers. And in astronomy, the numbers that we can run into can very quickly get very, very large. They are to use the common expression, astronomical, in scale. A good example of this might be, for example, the average distance between the sun and the earth. In written out in full precision, it's 149,597,870.619 kilometers. 
Now, again, since this is an introductory lecture where I'm sort of laying down what the groundwork is, I would never expect you to memorize what is a 12-digit number like that. Hell, I don't even have that number memorized. I was reading it off my screen and cheating here, too. The basic number I would expect you to remember. In round numbers, it's about 150 million kilometers. That's good enough for our purposes. And even 150 million is a pretty big number. But that isn't even getting started in astronomy. Let's take something like, just in the solar system, the mass of our star, the sun. It's a number so big, there is not a Latin word in our language or any other modern language that I am aware of to express this number. This is basically 198 followed by, I'm going to count this now, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 times 3, 27 zeros when I express the mass of the sun in kilograms. Now, I might be able to get away with that by saying, oh, well, let's see, there's, there's nine groups of three, so that would be a 1,989 billion, billion, billion kilograms. And I don't know about you, my brain can't wrap its way around that either. So we see one of the principal problems of astronomy is the numbers get really, really big, really, really fast because we're going to be measuring them in a system of units that was developed in the everyday world. And so we're going to have to find ways of coping. And at various times, what we're going to do is we're going to rescale our units. We're going to invent some special units for astronomy whose whole purpose is just to bring the numbers down to a reasonably human scale so I can wrap my head around them. Another number which gets you know, in that line, the approximate age of the Earth. It's around 4.6 billion years, or 4,600,000,000 years old in round numbers. Now, you'll notice a lot about these numbers. There's an awful lot of waste zeros going on here. We'll say something about that in just a second. Now, astronomy gets, gets, sort of gets the rap for having gigantic numbers. But in fact, there are some big non-astronomical numbers in the world, too. For example, as of... Let's see, September 16th, this is as of a little bit early last week, the United States national public debt stands at $9,016,288,006,279.21. And for those of you who pay attention to the uh, newspapers today, it's exactly that amount in Canadian dollars because the dollar has now slipped to now it's on parity with the Canadian dollar. And I don't even want to think about what that is in euros because the dollar just broke $1.40 to the euro. Ooh, ow. The number of Oreo cookies that have been baked since the very first Oreo cookie ran out of the factory sometime early in the 20th century is 490 billion cookies. That turns out to be approximately one Oreo cookie for every star in both the Milky Way and the Andromeda galaxies combined. So, you know, maybe we should start calling these economical numbers or industrial numbers instead of astronomical numbers because even in our modern age we're starting to get into some really big numbers. And again, I don't know what $9 trillion is. I have a hard enough time wrapping my head around my salary, which has got no money, we're near as many zeros in that. Um, and certainly, we need a way to try to express these numbers in a way that we can not only get our head around, but we can manipulate easily. And that brings us to scientific notation. I'm sure you've all seen this. This is a real commonplace of, of, of public school education. It's basically, it's a, very, it's a way of taking these gigantic, either very, very large, or, and I haven't extruded them yet, very, very small numbers, and expressing them in a very compact notation. Basically, getting rid of all the extra zeros I don't need and paying attention to those digits that actually have some significance here. Now, here's an example of a number, 1.989 times 10 to the 30. This number has two parts. 
This main part, the significant figures, is something referred to as the mantissa. This is the part that actually matters. This is what we actually measure. This number, which turns out to be the mass of our sun in kilograms, is basically measured to about four decimal places. It's 1.989 times 10 to the 30 kilograms here. So this is the number of significant digits, and you just lop off the last zero conventionally. The second piece is the exponent, and this is where I hide all those zeros. The exponent basically is the number of powers of 10 associated with that number. So because I've chosen to measure mass in kilograms, the mass of the sun is going to be 10 to the 30 kilograms. That's a 1 followed by 30 zeros. So it's a very nice compact number. The mantissa gives us the actual measurement, the exponent with the times 10 to the p part gives me the order of magnitude of the number in the unit system that I've chosen. In this case, I've chosen metric units of mass or kilograms. So this is how we take these gigantic, very large or very small numbers and re rewrite them into the part I've measured and then some number which tells me the scaling in powers of 10. And this idea of scaling things by powers of 10 up and down is very, very useful to us because it allows us to contract a gigantic dynamic range of numbers into actually a very small number of easily tractable numbers. Basically, the mantissa always runs between 0 and almost 10. We can all do 10. We've got 10 fingers for the most part. And so it's very easy to keep those kinds of things in your head. So let me give some just straightforward examples. The first of these, of course, is that mass of the sun, that 198 and 27 zeros of kilograms. I can't say that, but I can say 1.989 times 10 to the 30 kilograms. So another advantage that scientific notation gives us is it gives me a way to say the numbers in a straightforward, mathematically manipulable language. The diameter of a hydrogen atom. Let's go to the other extreme. Let's go to really tiny things. If I wanted to express that in meters, it's point a whole bunch of zeros, 106 meters. But expressed in scientific notation, it's 1.086, 1.06 times 10 to the minus 11 meters. So it pretty much tells you that it's going to be 11 powers of 10 smaller than 1 meter. So I've got, conveniently enough, a wooden meter stick here. A hydrogen atom is almost, in this case, 10 to the 12 is a trillion. So this is about 100 billion times smaller than this meter stick is a hydrogen atom. A kilogram, which I actually have very conveniently a old-fashioned definition of a kilogram. We'll come to this in a second. The difference between the mass of the sun and this kilogram is 1.98 times 10 to the 30 of these liters of water would be required to make up the mass of the sun. Okay, I'll be perfectly frank with you. I can't think of what, conceive of what 10 to the 30 actually is, but at least because I don't have to worry about writing that number of zeros and getting the count right by putting it in the exponent, it's now an easily mathematically manipulable number. Whereas writing out all the zeros, I'd get carpal tunnel syndrome trying to do the math. So scientific notation is extremely useful to us. It's a very, very simple and straightforward way to express numbers with an extremely large range. In astronomy, for example, whether we're talking about mass or we're talking about distance or we're talking about time, the three basic sets of units, we deal with extremely vast ranges of scales. Let's just take time for an example. 
The very shortest time in the universe is a time associated with general theory of relativity and gravity. It's 10 to the minus 33 seconds. Point 32 zeros and a one-th of a second. The longest time scale we deal with in astronomy in round numbers would be, say, the lifetime of the lowest mass stars, which is measured in trillions of years or a few times 10 to the 17 seconds. That spans 50 orders of 10, powers of 10 in time between the shortest interval and the longest physical interval that we are aware of in astronomy. And in fact, there's some people who are talking about intervals of years in astronomy that could, in certain, certain scenarios, range up to 10 to the 100 power of years. So it's a huge range, but I can express it in numbers where at least the exponent never gets bigger than 100. I kind of know what 100 is. 100 is about the number of people in this room, I, I hope. Um, one is one of those. We can actually turn these inhuman scale numbers into a semi-human scale by simply rewriting them in human terms. So scientific notation is very useful to us. We'll see it over and over again. We're going to use it constantly. That's why I'm reviewing it. Now, of course, I've thrown out numbers, and those numbers are really kind of meaningless unless they actually have units associated with them. I'm measuring 10 to the 30 of what? You know, hogsheads? Or what is it I'm measuring for the mass of the sun or the size of the Earth or the size of the Earth's orbit? In the sciences, and astronomy is one of the sciences, we use the metric system exclusively, which means we will be expressing length in meters or appropriate multiples of tens of meters. We will express mass in kilograms, and we will express time in seconds or appropriate multiples thereof. And of course, there are some obvious time units which become useful. The year is definitely not a metric quantity, but it is a highly useful human unit that we are going to employ over and over again not the least because it actually is astronomically based. All scientists use the metric system universally throughout the world. So we all agree upon the system of units. There are only three nations in the world that do not use the metric system as their primary legal system of units. That is the United States of America, Liberia, a small impoverished West African nation, and Myanmar, a corrupt and brutal South Asian di dictatorship. What is wrong with this picture? We don't seem to be able to get our act together when it comes to metric. People have been talking about metrification of the United States since I was a little kid. The only place I get to see metric anymore is when I travel overseas or when I get close to either the Mexican or Canadian border where they actually have to split the, limits, the speed limits and the distances and the signs so the drivers from Mexico or Canada respectively know where the hell they are with respect to getting home. So in this class... And I'm, I'm going to admit, I'm going to slip up and I'm going to use English units every now and then because, you know, I'm an American boy and I've grown up with this. The only metric unit I've never been able to get my head around is the Celsius system of temperature. I've been trying for a decade to train myself in Celsius. I've got thermometers in my house that read out degrees C. I, I just can't. I, give, I can't do it. I'm still trying. I, I use them in the lab, but if you told me, oh, it's 37 today, I'll go, okay. Just uh, give me the unit. I, I don't know what that means. 37 Fahrenheit, know exactly what it means, know exactly how to dress. Anyway, now, that gives us the units, but in the language that we use, and this is the international language of this, we can also encode a lot of the basic powers of 10 in the language of the units. And, of course, for this, there is an interesting mix of the Greek and the Latin that are borrowed for this to make prefixes on the basic units. So, for example... 
We like to we like to order numbers by ordinals of a thousand. That's why you often see a comma between numbers of a thousand. That's sort of an English American kind of convention. So we're going to use this in powers of ten to the three as the main interval. A thousand or ten to the three of something will be a kilo, for example, a kilogram or a kilometer. Ten to the six will be a mega, like a megawatt or a mega year or an old-fashioned megabyte. 10 to the 9 is a giga, like a gigabyte or a giga year. We're going to use mega year and giga year a lot in this class. 10 to the 12 is a tera, like a terabyte. You can now buy one terabyte disk drives out there for a few hundred bucks. Absolutely amazing. I remember when disk drives used to be a few hundred bucks and they were the size of a washing machine. Terawatts is now sort of typical power output for a large power station. It's measured in terawatts. So these are all in steps of a thousand, and we use these as a nice shorthand so I don't have to be slinging numbers upon numbers around. It allows me to give me a nice shorthand for essentially restating my units in scientific notation. On the small end, we have the centa, 10 to the minus 2. That's an exception. A centa is one one-hundredth of a meter, like a centimeter. It's a reason why it's a, a convention is because it's about the width of a human finger. So it actually turned out to be an amazingly convenient everyday unit. So centa is one of the few ex ex exceptions we have to the powers of a thousand rule that goes into these indexes. After we get past centa, and there's other funny things like hecta and hecto, but those are just rarely used. Milli for a thousandth, micro for a millionth, nano for a billionth, and there's a bunch of others after that, but we really never encounter below nano here in the sciences. In physics and things like that, you can get into femto and atto and things like that. But, but in astronomy, we never get past pretty much milli, micro, and nano. After this is like 10, 12. Is, anyone know what 10 minus 12 is? Pico. Very good. So millimeters and milliseconds we'll often run into for very short intervals of times. Microseconds and microns. Micron is a funny one. It's, it's a shortening of micrometer. You're going to hear me use that instinctively. It's one of the few cases where we, we break the rules. There's always rules seem to always have exceptions. Micron is one of them. Nanosecond and nanometer. These are about as low as we go in astronomy. Nanosecond is about the shortest interval of time that we really deal with in a class like this. A couple of nanoseconds is the time it takes light to go from here to the back of the room, for example. So that, that kind of sets the scale for you. Nanosecond is basically, or a nanometer, for example, Oops, nanometer. Nanometer is of order of wavelength of light. So that's why that turns out to be one that we're going to encounter a lot. For example, visible light has a wavelength of 550 nanometers. So these are the basic pre prefixes we're going to use over and over again. We're going to talk about kilograms and mega years and giga years. Sometimes we'll talk about tera years or terawatts, millimeters, microns, nanoseconds, nanometers. So just kind of get used to translating in your head how to turn those into scientific notation. So what are the units of length? What are the units we're going to use? Well, the basic unit of length is really length, mass, and time are the basic units that we're going to encounter here from the metric system. There are a lot of other units that have to do with temperature. We're going to defer talking about temperature until we need it later when we talk about the physics of astronomy. And we're not going to talk about things like amps and volts and things like that that are electronic. That's, that's for hardcore physics stuff. Let's start out with the most basic unit, a unit of length. The standard unit of length is the meter. I'm show, holding up a nice wooden example of a meter stick here. The traditional definition of a meter comes out of an effort from the French Enlightenment <coughs> of the late 18th century and early 19th century 
to try to cut through a lot of the very provincial uh, irrationality of the units that were used throughout the world. From time immemorial, the system of units that was defined for commerce, for measurement, for architecture, were all locally defined, and they were usually a monopoly either of the priestly class or of the ruling class of that country. And if you were able to somehow manipulate those units, it allowed you some power to manipulate commerce and things like that. But as commerce became more international, as science became more international, this individual local systems of units in each different country became steadily unsustainable. A scientist working in France had a difficult time quantifying their measurements to a scientist working in England or Germany or somewhere else. They used completely different units for length. Everyone pretty much agreed on time, for reasons that will become clear in this class, because time is astronomically related. But things like units of weight, units of length, were not agreed upon from point to point. Take English units, the foot. Well, there's a reason it's called the foot, because it was about the size of a human foot. Some Shakespeare's comment about man being the measure of all things, well, that was, that was not just simply a uh, nice, nice pithy statement. It's actually a fairly profound statement about way in which human beings have been used for centuries as the standard of measurement, after all. The old-fashioned cubit of biblical terms, measuring things by, oh yeah, give me two fingers of something. Um, oh yeah, feels about like that much weight. Oh yeah, let's paste this out in feet. You can see where the basic units are the ones we carry around with us every day. Then when we got organized, people said, okay, whose foot? Well, of course, it's the big guy, the king, or maybe the high priest. We'll use his foot. What about when he died? Well, then the next guy came along, and maybe that was Dennis the short-footed, and suddenly all of your measurements for architecture just went all to hell. It was even within countries. Different cities would have different systems of measurements. A couple weeks ago, my wife and I were on vacation in Italy. We got to go to Venice and Florence. First time we'd ever been there. Venice and Florence had two completely different systems of measurements during the Renaissance. There were places in town where there was a metal ruler, metal line and metal imposed, stuck in the wall on the city hall. What was that doing there? What was that little architecture thing? Well, that was your local unit of length, and everyone would come up there and make their own ruler by measuring against the city hall measurement. And that was repeated in major city after city in different conventions. Weights were the same way. It was nuts. So people wanted to rationalize these. In the Enlightenment, people wanted to smash the state, and so they wanted to get away from this idea of personal units and they wanted those units to be based physically and rationally on things that any person could measure anywhere. So underneath the system of units of metric is an idea of getting at things which are physically based, which we can agree upon a physical definition which isn't provincial. So for example, the meter. The way they defined the meter was not in terms of the human body or the little metal ruler in the, in the Göttingen uh, town hall, but one ten millionth of the distance from the North Pole to the equator of the Earth. So to define the meter, the scientists of the French Enlightenment had to first measure accurately the diameter of the Earth along a north-south meridian line. And then they divided it by an even power of ten. Have you ever wondered why there's 12, 12 inches in a foot? Anyone know why it's 12 and not 10? We got 10 fingers. and The king didn't have 12 fingers. I, I know they kind of inbred, but they didn't usually inbred that bad. Anyone know why? Because 12 is evenly divisible by 2, 3, and 4 without resort to fractions. 12 is a big price to pay to divide by 3 without having to use fractions. Everybody hates fractions. 
If you think it's bad, wait till we talk about the Babylonian system of measurements here in a couple days. They used base 60 because they hated fractions so much. So not only did they introduce units whose basis was in the physical world, they introduced the conception of using powers of 10, the basis behind our ordinal number system, to be the measurement. So we lose all these funny things like, you know, 8 ounces in a cup, 16 ounces in a pint, 16 ounces in a pound, all those funky numbers. They're all basic conventions which are going to be gotten rid of and we're going to use even powers of 10, the millis and micros and megas and kilos. So that's the traditional measurement. Now that would be great if the Earth was in fact a perfect sphere or even a slightly flattened sphere. The Earth in fact turns out to be a rather irregular, lumpy, bumpy place. It's got mountains and valleys and ocean basins. So we need a much more robust definition than the traditional one ten millionth of distance from the North Pole to the equator. The modern definition may not sound much better, but in fact it is very good. It's one two nine nine seven nine two four fifth of a second how far the light travels in a vacuum in that fraction of a second. This number here, two nine nine seven nine two four five eight, turns out to be the speed of light in meters how far light would travel in one second. Well, you simply say, how far does it take light to travel one meter? It's that nasty looking fraction. You say, that doesn't look a whole lot better than one twelfth of uh, the length of King so-and-so's finger. But in fact, the speed of light is a universal constant throughout the entire universe in a vacuum. And therefore, we've now tied our unit of length to the fastest thing in the universe, the speed of light in a vacuum. So we've tied it to the very thing that ties space and time together. So this is what we mean by taking our unit system and tying it down to fundamental physical properties. So the meter is now defined in terms of a measurement of that short interval of light travel time, and it's measured using special optical techniques called interferometry. So it can be measured with laboratory equipment to, well, I gave you an awful lot of digits there. It actually really is measured to nine decimal places of accuracy, in fact, a little bit more. That's the exact definition of the speed of light. It's the only exactly defined physical constant in the universe because we've tied our system of meters to the speed of light exactly. So it's the only exception in all sides. So let's sort of get an idea of where meters come into play. Let's give you a sense of scale. Let's start with this room. I have one meter up here. This is sort of the basis of our system of units. If I now wanted to go from one end of this room to the other, I'm not quite 10 meters across. Probably 10 meters gets me out into the hall on either side. So one power of a meter. 10 meters becomes of order the size of a room or the width of a sort of a large building. How about 100 meters? Now I get to play with my favorite program, Google Earth. 100 meters would be going roughly from the classroom here to almost to the other side of Smith Laboratory. Or if I turn this on its side, 100 meters is about the length of McPherson lab. So a meter is about the size of a person. Tens of meters is about the size of a large room or a small building. 100 meters is the size of a large building or the typical distance between buildings on the OSU campus. Hey, we got this power of 10 thing going. Let's keep walking. What's 1,000 meters from here? If I go due east of here, by, due west of here by 1,000 meters, here's McPherson lab. I go through the stadium, I get to the other side here of the Olentangy River, just getting into the sports fields on the other side of the river. That's 1,000 meters 
But now because I just don't like carrying numbers bigger than a few hundred around in my head, we're going to introduce the first of the indexes. It's one kilometer away. So 1,000 meters is about the size of a college campus. 100 meters is about the size of a college building. 10 meters is about the size of a college classroom. And one meter is uh, within a factor of two of the size of a college student. All right, let's go up to 10 kilometers. 10 kilometers gets me out just past the 270 Beltway here to the west and out into the train tracks there. This gets me roughly to the size of a city. So 10 kilometers is of order the size of a moderate size American city, or actually most cities I've ever been in are about 10 kilometers across. So whenever we talk about phenomena like, oh, that asteroid's about 10 kilometers across, it's about if you sat that asteroid down on the Earth, very gently, of course, it would sit down gently and cover the city of Columbus. So a kilometer is the size of a campus. 10 kilometers is the size of a city containing that campus. Let's go 100 kilometers. Let's keep moving west. Why not? West, go west, young man. 100 kilometers away on a due west line. Now I'm starting to get a little bit of the curvature of the Earth, although it's not as obviously seen here in this picture. Gets me actually to the shore of the Great Miami River out between Troy and Tip City, Ohio. Anyone here from Troy or Tip City? Yeah, that's a couple of Which one? Tip City. So this would almost get you home. It's about 100 kilometers away, due west. Absolutely due west along the, um, basically the current line, line of constant latitude. So 100 kilometers is the size of a couple of counties. So 100 kilometers, sorry, 10 kilometer size of a city, 100 kilometers, a couple of counties. 1,000 kilometers, I now start crossing state lines. And now you can actually begin to see some of the curvature of the Earth. If I go exactly 1,000 kilometers due west of here, I end up out in the middle of nowhere in a cornfield out in Andrews County, Missouri. Almost, almost into Kansas, Nebraska. So 1,000 kilometers starts now becoming a scale of a size of at least a good part of a continent or a nation. 10,000 kilometers, now you really see the curvature of the Earth. If I go 10,000 kilometers, I've left the continent of North America and along a great circle, I in fact end off a little bit off the Pacific coast of Japan. So when I get up to scales of thousands to 10,000 kilometers, I'm now talking about things that are kind of continent or big sections of a planet size. Planets are of order 10,000 kilometers in size or bigger. Continents on planets or major geographical structures are 1,000 kilometer sizes or 100 kilometer sizes. And then when you start getting down to sort of human scale things, you start getting into tens of kilometers. Craters tend to be kilometers and so forth. So that sets our scale. You can sort of keep in your mind these powers of 10 actually encompass different scales of phenomena in astronomy. Well, of course, we want to leave the Earth. And now we start getting out to 100,000 kilometers. 100,000 kilometers is represented by the yellow bar at the top of this picture. It's now a little under a quarter, a little over a quarter of the way from the Earth to the Moon. So when we start getting out to scales of things that are 100,000 to million kilometers, 100,000 kilometers, I'm now talking about things that are the scales of planets and their moons, the orbital systems now of those bodies. Once I get past that, once I get past 100,000, that number is really big. It's starting to get hard to carry in my head. You know, we never use things like megameters or gigameters because, I think just because they sound stupid, but we pretty much stop at 100,000 kilometers. But notice that 100,000 kilometers, that's 100,000 of anything is a big thing. 
we haven't even gotten to the moon yet. So if we're going to go out to the solar system, we're going to need a new unit of length or I'm going to have to carry around a whole lot of zeros. So we're going to fall back upon not the size of the Earth, but the size of the Earth's orbit. And I'll define the astronomical unit of length, the AU. We're going to use the AU so much, I'm going to use the word astronomical unit maybe today and tomorrow, and I'll just call it the AU here on out. The astronomical unit, or AU, is the mean distance from the Earth to the Sun. The Earth is not on a perfectly circular orbit. As we'll see, it's actually on an elliptical orbit, but you can define the mean distance that it sits from the Sun. And that turns out to be one of those numbers I gave you at the beginning of class, which is about 1.496 times 10 to the 8 kilometers. Or to put it in human units, it's about 150 million kilometers. So 150 million kilometers. That's over 1,000 times. Oh, sorry. That's getting up to be a few hundred times the distance of the Earth to the moon is the size of the Earth to the sun. So the AU becomes our yardstick, if you will, for the solar system. When I talk about distances between planets, I'm going to express those in astronomical units. Because it turns out that if we go from the inner part of our solar system to the sun to Mercury, it's about 0.4 astronomical units. The outermost planet is, well, major planet is Neptune, which is out around 30 astronomical units. You get out into the realm of the Kuiper Belt and Pluto at 40 astronomical units. You get out into the realm of distant comets at 100 astronomical units. So it's a nice, convenient unit because I don't even break 1,000 before I get out of the solar system. So it becomes our meter stick for astronomy in the solar system. But once I get past the solar system, then I start getting into hundreds of thousands of AUs. Oh, damn, there's my 100,000 again. Time to reset the units. We're going to use two different versions of this. We're going to introduce today the light year because it's the most familiar. I'm not going to use light years very often except maybe towards the end of class. If you take 162, you'll meet a companion unit called the parsec, which we'll leave for 162. The light year is the distance that's traveled by light in one year, the amount of time it takes the Earth to go around the sun. If you express that in kilometers, that's 9.46 times 10 to the 12 kilometers. It's about 9.5 trillion kilometers. It's a huge number. Basically, it's about the U.S. national debt in kilometers. This is used for distances between the stars. So astronomical units will be our standard for going from planet to planet. We'll switch back to kilometers when we go from moon to planet or move around, groove around on the planets and moons themselves but we'll switch to light years when we have to leave our solar system and go to the nearest stars. So again, to set a sense of scale, here's the inner part of our solar system, a sort of cute sketch at least. The distance from the Earth to the Sun on average is one astronomical unit, and it is a good stand-in for the distances between planets. It's about, in round numbers, 150 million kilometers. Ten astronomical units get you out to the diameter of Jupiter, so it kind of gets you inner solar system. 100 astronomical units get you into the outer solar system. We have Pluto and Uranus and Neptune and all the Kuiper Belt objects. Our solar system is hiding deep. Our pit of the solar system is hiding deep in the middle here. A thousand astronomical units get you to the very outskirts of our own solar system, and then once you get past that, there's great emptiness until you span approximately four and a quarter light years to get to the nearest star. So within a solar system, AUs are good. Once we leave the solar system, we have to switch to light years.
So these are the basic units of length that we're going to be using here. Of course, light years. We have to get many light years before we start seeing even the brightest stars in our sky. We have to go for our entire Milky Way galaxy spans thousands of light years, tens of thousands of light years, 26,000 in round numbers to go from the center of our galaxy to where our sun orbits the center of our spiral galaxy. And it gets worse and worse, but I'll leave that for 162. So those are units of distance. Units of time. Time is easy. You already know what time it is. Well, more or less, I know what time it is, and I'm still on time. The basic unit of time in the metric system is the second. The traditional definition of the metric system is in terms of an astronomical number. It's 186,400th of a mean solar day. Take 24 hours, multiply by 60 minutes per hour, multiply by 60 seconds, 60 seconds per minute, and you get 86,400. Now, of course, this turns out to be a nice definition, but as we're going to learn, the Earth does not, in fact, rotate at an exactly constant rate of speed. So setting your clock by something who's changing its rotation speed, bad thing. So the modern definition is 9,192,631,770 oscillations of a cesium-133 isotope atomic clock. This is what's the basic standard of time for using now. We use it what's called an atomic clock standard. We let it, the oscillations of a radioactive element define what the number of seconds is. Obviously, this really wacky number here is so that the definition of a second in terms of oscillations of cesium-133 atoms comes out to about the traditional 186,400th of the, of the day. So we did, in fact, try to preserve the astronomical day, but now we've actually decoupled it partially by talking about it in terms of a cesium atomic clock. The most common uses of time in this class will be seconds, minutes, hours, and years. Once we get up into years, we will start adding things like mega year and giga year. When we need to talk about millions and billions of years. I tend to be sloppy. I will actually talk about million years and mega years interchangeably. You just have to be kind of flexible with me. Here's what a modern atomic clock looks like. Here's, in fact, eight of them at the National Bureau of Standards, all sitting there oscillating away. One is the primary standard. The others are backups, and they take over if the other one crashes. So this is our atomic standard of time. All of your GPS time, for example, that your cell phones may or may not be picking up, atomic clock standards. You can buy atomic clocks that receive microwave, um, radio wave, shortwave receivers on the wall. They all are on terms of these cesium atomic clocks. We'll say a lot more about timekeeping conventions later in the class because they are astronomically based. Units of mass. The fundamental unit of mass is the kilogram. The original definition of the kilogram was one liter of pure water. It's kind of got an analog in here with English units. Some of you may have heard the expression, a pint's a pound the world around. In fact, one pint of water does have a weight of one pound in the English system. That's why there's 8 ounces in a cup and 16 ounces in a pint and 16 ounces in a pound. That's why we use the same language. Of course, the metric system, they wanted something other than, um, than pound o water, so they defined it as 1 liter, which is 1,000 cubic centimeters of pure water. Well, this is actually Columbus tap water, so this is not exactly a kilogram. So we need a much more physical definition. And interestingly here, scientists have for the last couple of centuries actually punted on tying down the system of mass to a fundamental physical system. Length is tied to the speed of light. 
time is tied to quantum mechanical oscillations of radioactive isotopes. The kilogram is actually now defined in terms of the international prototype of the kilogram, which is basically a platinum iridium alloy chunk kept at the International Bureau of Weights and Measures in Sèvres, France. So we actually haven't put the kilogram on a physical basis yet. There it is. That's the kilogram. And in fact, in the last years, people have learned that this kilogram is about 50 milligrams uh, light. So therein we have a little bit of a problem. Our system of mass is actually slightly in crisis right now because our standard is actually based on an arbitrary slug of pure iridium, platinum iridium alloy. There is a new definition of the kilogram being developed in, in terms of a sphere of perfect isotopic silicon 28 in which they will count the exact number of atoms in that spherical crystal and use that to define the kilogram. The Russians are building the first of these. It turns out it's been very, very hard. They've been trying to do it for 10 years, and we still don't have a physical basis, so kind of stay tuned on that. The way it works is the standard kilogram. They make a bunch of copy kilograms. The copy kilograms are then distributed to all the different national bureaus of standard, and then those are distributed to local agencies to check out, like, the butcher scale at the store to make certain that when you buy a kilo of ground beef, you're really getting an honest-to-God kilo, according to the kilogram in Sèvres, France. Now, this brings us to an interesting distinction of mass versus weight. On the Earth, we don't make this distinction very often. In everyday language, we don't make it. But mass and weight are not actually the same thing. Mass is a measurement of the amount of matter in an object. Why we're trying to define the kilogram in terms of the number of atoms of silicon in a pure isotopic sphere, whereas weight is the force of gravity experienced by that massive object. Of the two, mass is the most fundamental of these. It counts the actual amount of stuff. So, for example, the amount of mass of this one kilo of water here in this jar in my hand will be one kilo of water atoms plus an algene container, whether this leader is on the Earth, on Mount Everest, up on the moon, or out in deep space between the galaxies, because it's the amount of stuff. But its weight will depend upon what the local gravitation field is. I take this guy to the moon, it will weigh one-sixth less, but it's still one liter of good, mm, good Columbus tap water. So mass is fundamental, but weight is not. But because we only experience in everyday life the weight, the gravity of the Earth, we're pretty much just conflate these two. In metric, we measure mass in kilograms and weight, the unit of force, in a unit called the Newton. In English, we measure mass in slugs and we measure weight in pounds. And so you can see the problem. English units is a measurement of weight. Metric units is a measurement of mass. So just to end out here, what is a, a relative table here? Let's take the weight of Elvis, the king of rock and roll, at various places in the universe. About the time of his alleged death, he weighed 255 pounds, or there was 116 kilos of him. Now, of course, some people think he's actually gone to moon or Mars. On the moon, the gravity is one-sixth, so it'll be 42.2 pounds of Elvis, but it's still 116 kilos of him because it's the amount of stuff he is. On Mars, he'd be 97 pounds, but it's still 116 kilos. On Jupiter, it'd be 597 pounds of Elvis, but still only 116 kilos because the substance hasn't changed, just the gravity field. And of course, why not just keep going with the ridiculousness of this experiment? If we go to the sun, Elvis would be 7,144 pounds of weight, 
that may be one big hunk of hunk of burning love, but it's only 116 kilos of the king of rock and roll. Okay, I'll see you all tomorrow.